Welcome back to the Art and Science of Sound Healing. I'm your host, Thomas Orr Anderson, recording again from my cozy mountain cabin studio here in Sewanee, Tennessee, surrounded by thick, lush forests and oh, so many beautiful waterfalls. It's a wonderful day to be here. Today we have a very exciting guest as usual. He's a gentleman that I've known for quite some time in one or two different regards. His name is Ernest Chapman. He is an accomplished musician of a variety of sorts, a very well-educated, well-studied, and very well-practiced musician. He's also a martial artist and a sort of a mystical sort of guy with a lot of very interesting perspectives on pretty much everything. And one of his great specialties is learning and teaching in music. And also he has a, a lot to say or a lot to try to say about the more ineffable realms that we contact through our studies of music and geometry and uh yeah let's uh welcome ernest chapman thanks for having me thomas it's good to be here it's definitely a delight i've been looking forward to having you on the show yeah me too i've been thinking about it a lot over the last couple months since we started talking about it and um just how many different things intermingle in both of our worlds and and all the all the things that we both do is pretty exciting yes indeed so to kick us off so ostensibly our topic today is learning teaching and the magic of music Mm. um so to, to kick us off could you maybe tell us a little bit about your background in learning music and how that has sort of translated into your your deep devotion to teaching music and some of your unusual and uh, sort of magical methods of teaching music? Yeah, well, the way that I learned was the way that I learned how to speak. The way that I learned how to play music was the way that I learned how to talk. Um, I was raised by a songwriter and my mom was a songwriter and my dad, she still is, and my dad was a therapist and so I was surrounded by people all my life growing up that were accomplished musicians, um, whether they be studio musicians, session players, songwriters, producers, artists, those types on one side. And then in my dad's world, I was surrounded by therapists, teachers, people that were deeply committed to human transformation, to to taking to taking the darkest parts of people's lives and, and helping piece them back together and then helping people achieve higher, higher levels of performance and transformation. So those two things were what shaped me from a young age. And because I had that background and I kind of grew up through osmosis absorbing these, these kinds of concepts as, as sort of just, you know, Tuesday, (laughs) uh, it, it, it just created a set of basic core understandings that, everything that I learned throughout my life always would stick to this core set of things that I didn't even know what it was. Cause I just, it was like the air you breathe. Um, it, and that I could probably define it the most easily by saying the foundation of it is that, that music is the, is, is one of the root languages of just of reality of the universe. Uh, and it's one of the core emotional languages of being a person in the world and so if you speak that language, it doesn't matter what instrument you play. It doesn't matter what style of music you play. Um, you can have conversations with people who you can't talk to because they speak Japanese and you speak Spanish. And uh, it doesn't matter. You can transcend a lot of the limitations um, that we place on each other and that we place on ourselves. So the the magic part for me is um, really the, the reason why I do everything I do. And, and to me, I, I think of magic as transformation. So 
you know, the old definition magic is uh, causing change to occur in conformity with will, which you may be familiar with. Um, kind of, it sounds sort of technical. It's one of those things you read in an Aleister Crowley book and you're like, uh, I think I said his name wrong. Crowley, is that right? <laughs> um, I always, you know, <laughs> always said Crowley because that's how Ozzy Osbourne pronounced it. Okay. Well then, well, if Ozzy said that, <laughs> then, then we're good. But, uh, and I know I'm, I'm starting this, this off by jumping all over the place, but I'm doing that on purpose because I'm throwing a bunch of things out, a bunch of open loops and we can go start closing them up one after the other. Um, but where I was going with that was to say that, tr that really the name of the game for me is transformation. It's reaching a higher potential. It's becoming a better version of myself and then sharing that with the world. So the way that I do that personally, just for me, just if it was just me, is it music. And, uh, I do that by challenging myself on a regular basis, on a daily basis to increase my skills, to increase my understanding, to learn new things, uh, and, and then as a teacher, as I've developed as a teacher, I've found what I'm really doing is listening to the student the same way I would listen to a great piece of music. But I listen to the way they talk and I listen to the way they move and I listen to the way they look. And I'm trying to pick up on the deeper current. What is it that they really seek? Because some of the time, yeah, okay, they're here to learn hand positions and techniques and they're here to learn how to read something or how to play off a chart or I want to learn this one song or this piece. But most of the time there's something else that the, the music is, a, is sort of standing in for that they're trying to achieve in life. And to me, that's where the most interesting conversations happen. And the more I focus on that, the more it comes out in other areas. So that's the bottom line. And again, that comes from that early background of being surrounded by therapists on the one side and professional musicians on the other side. And both groups of people, when you, when you sit down and hang out with them, they're always challenging themselves to achieve a higher potential. It's never good enough. They're always trying to make it better. Um, and so that's, that's my foundation. Cool. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like we actually have quite a bit in common even uh, in our early life I also grew up in a house where instead of a, instead of a living room we always had a music room and exactly pretty yep. much all the main things my family did um, together the primary activity was playing music and then mm. if it wasn't playing music there was uh, eating because my mom's an amazing cook. And then there was also around the dinner table, very challenging, uh, philosophical, and I guess uh, sort of religious and philosophical debates, lots of hmm. uh, logic and science and philosophy. But then also my mom is a, a nurse, so she's definitely a sort of therapist. And my dad was a teacher and definitely a lot of teaching is really fundamentally therapy. So it's kind of interesting mm. hearing your background. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your particular methodology of teaching? Because I think you have a, mm -hmm. a somewhat unique methodology. Yeah. Well, what I, what I do is I listen as much as I can. I, I ask questions and I let them tell me what they want to learn. Um, and when I first started doing this, it was, people thought it was kind of strange um, because the, you know, the, the typical thing to do, if you're going to say like, you're going to be a piano teacher is, you know, you get out of college, you studied music, uh, you know, you've, you've, you've achieved a certain level of skill or technical, technical ability on whatever your instrument or instruments are. And then there's a few different tracks people go down. You know, you have the classical type um, teachers that have very specific kind of stages of sequences of curriculum that they go through that are, that are somewhat strict. There's different schools within that, you know, um, depending on who you studied under, it could be all the way to the level of seriousness of like the way ice skaters train, like, you know, Russian ice skaters. Uh, think about that, but for piano. Um, and then you have the more singer-songwriter type people that are multi-instrumentalists that like you go into the lesson and it's like, let's learn a Beatles song, you know, and, and uh, we may not be 
we not, may not be doing a lot of scales and arpeggios and sight reading, but you're going to, you're going to be able to sing, you know what I mean? And I kind of started out as a teacher in, in between those two worlds where I, I would do a little bit more technique and a little bit more sort of theory and classical type stuff than the, the singer songwriter, multi-instrumentalist teaching on the side teacher. But I would, but then what I would do is I would take the old dead white guy music that we were studying, <laughs> and then I would teach the student how to play it. Like, what would John Lennon do with this, um, with you know, with this sonatina by Clementi? You know, like would would Prince play this Beethoven movement? Um, the way it was written on the page, or would he like, he'd probably like learn it first and then maybe he'd substitute some chords and then start singing over it. And so I could freak out both of those categories of teacher because I would, I, it would be like, for, for whatever reason, I, I don't know why, I guess people, people often are led down one path or another, but I could never, I think the problem is I could never make up my mind. I like, I want to do everything. So I would start taking things and put them in the wrong category and that's where I found the coolest stuff. So, uh, and I know I'm kind of a long answer to a simple question, but I'm getting to getting to the, the the crux of it, which is by taking something and putting in the wrong category, you end up with a juxtaposition that can open a doorway that's all of a sudden you're playing three-dimensional chess and you're not on the same plane anymore. And I did that by accident because I, I discovered a methodology for figuring out why students couldn't do physical technical movements with their bodies. And I got it from martial arts. So stay with me because it's going to get kind of interesting. Um, studying martial arts, I, I came to the, to the realization studying at first Aikido and then Hapkido, which is a Korean martial art, and then the root arts that, that led to Hapkido as well, uh, Samrang-do. Uh, which is also called Samrang Sul. I, I discovered in those studies that there is an emotional component to physical movements. There's there's an emotional component to the way your body moves. Where if you're not mentally, emotionally, and physically in alignment, and your mind isn't clear, you're probably you know you have a, a chance you'll make a mistake. You know what I mean? Um, when you make mistakes in a martial arts class, you can actually hurt yourself. So unlike a music, cl a music class, if you make a mistake, you're less likely to hurt yourself, although you might get repetitive strain injury, but you'll only find out 10 years later, which is unfortunate. <laughs> but with, with martial arts, you make a mistake like um, I made a mistake about a year ago and I broke my collarbone, you know? So there's this, there's this sort of immediacy to it where it's black or white. It's either right or wrong, and it has to be that way because – if you extrapolate out to a real world situation, if you don't move correctly and something's going, something's going down like that, you only get one chance. And that's, that's a very high bar. Um, and so the way that we train is simulating those kinds of, all right, you get one shot. All right, you didn't do it. Okay, well, you screwed up, you know. Whereas with music, we're stopping and starting and repeating it and thinking about it in different ways. And it's a little bit less like the stakes aren't as high. And, and what that led to when I was studying both simultaneously and teaching was a series of realizations. And, and I, it really came out in my teaching where I realized I would have students who could not move correctly. And it did not matter how many times I showed them how to do it correctly. It did not matter if I moved their hands for them. And it did not matter if I showed them and did it in front of them. What mattered was when I figured out why they were doing it wrong and when it was a chronic issue that was almost impossible to get it straight, it typically was because there was an emotional layer to this that was underneath the mental, that was underneath the physical. So now I'm thinking in layers. And I'm drilling down into this being, this person in front of me, this spiritual, mental, physical, and emotional being. And I'm asking them all these questions that, that I started to realize these aren't like typical questions I even remember anyone asking me when I was taking a lot of lessons. These are like the kind of questions you ask somebody almost in a therapeutic setting. And I had a moment a few years back, it was about eight years ago, where I started going, okay, well, I, I should be careful because I'm actually not a therapist. I'm not going to pretend. So where's that line? I had to find where that line is. Mm. Um, 
and and so the the thing I'm getting to is that there's this set of transformations that happen when you when you seek to put in alignment the physical, the mental, and the emotional. And the kinds of questions you ask have to center around like why did that mistake happen again? And oftentimes, well, this, the mistake happened because I be, I believed I had to do it that way for some reason. But really, it was it was in my body. My muscles moved the wrong way. Well, why did your muscles? Why do you have a reflex? To, to move, why, why are you tightening up? Why are you jerking your your elbow to the left? Like whatever it is. And I kept I kept discovering with people that when I got down to the bottom of it, it was it was, a, it was an emotional shift is what they needed. And when when we found a way to have that shift, and usually it was them coming up with what it was and then talking through it, then all of a sudden they could play the thing correctly. It would it like their hands would move the right way, their technique would improve, and it felt kind of magical. Um, so I called it the magic music method, and I've been I've been writing a lot of blogs and books about it for the last five years, trying to capture that thing. It's like lightning in a bottle. Uh, it's it's like a, a moment in the lesson. Um, it's a moment of transformation. And that's what I'm really looking for. And it's not always very complicated either. I know I probably made it sound kind of complicated, but that's what's happening. Wow. I'm excited to hear about that. That's uh... <laughs> that was a lot. So I, I understand if you're like, okay, well, let's unpack that. What did you just say? <laughs> I, I, th- I think I caught on. Um, I, def- I, I caught on to the underlying framework and sort of concept behind it. Um, mm-hmm. What I didn't catch on to is what precisely that might look like in action. Could you describe, you know, a, mm-hmm. sort of a, a classic example of this happening or you working through this method with a student? Yeah, um, it, it would basically be asking the question why until I get down to the root cause. Um, so one of the things that happens that causes mistakes, you start to see patterns when you do something a, a long time. And one of, the, one of the classic patterns is that students will play things too quickly and then they'll make a mistake because they're moving too fast. Mm-hmm. Um, when mm-hmm. I first discovered the underlying psychological reasons for this with the majority, I mean, if you did a bell curve, it'd be like most of them would be this. It it would take a little longer for me to get to it because I've done it enough times now. I could just straight up tell you what it is, and and what it is is they often think they have to play it the speed that they hear it in their mind, and so when you get a piece of music stuck in your head, you hear it like you're listening to the radio, and the, they try to play along with that, and their fingers can't move correctly. Like they, they can't play it that fast, but they don't realize it. So you have to tell them to slow down, right? So that seems kind of obvious. It's that classic thing where you're like, slow down, son. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, so if, if you're lucky and every student ever you ever deal with always just does what you say, uh, <laughs> then you'll never have to discover why they were playing too fast to begin with. And, and it, chances are they'll do it correctly in the lesson and then go mess it up at home. So you really want to get down to the bottom of it. And th- there's a lot of times there's emotional components where the student thinks that they have to please the teacher because there's, there's a parent child relationship that's underlying um if you look at the uh, the transactional analysis if you're familiar with burn uh eric i think eric burn is his name you know he says each person has characteristics of characteristics of parent adult and child in the way they communicate depending on who they're talking to they'll communicate as an adult to an adult like the way you and i are talking right now or you know, if you're actually a parent, you talk to your child like they're a child. Oftentimes, the student-teacher relationship involves the student showing up in the child role and then the teacher being in the parent role. And so there's there's these unspoken assumptions that students will bring in that you have to unpack where they like – they want to please you and they don't realize that that like actually the best thing they can do is just kind of relax and just take it easy and 
slow down. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to be perfect. They're trying to do it correctly, but they don't know how to do it correctly yet. You have to show them that. And so then they rush into it and they try to play too fast. Um, and then they make mistakes. And then it keeps happening over and over again. If you get them to slow down in the lesson, it still reappears at home because they, now they're playing at the speed that's in their head. So you got to create rituals, actual mm. practice rit rituals that they then repeat and they practice how to practice in the lesson. So then when they go home, they're just repeating what they did in the lesson. You know what I'm saying? But the number one thing I see that has to be addressed is people are nervous or they're, and they don't, and they put up a really good front, but they they're trying to they're trying to appear even if it's just to themselves. Like I've got this, I'm competent, I can do this. And the underlying false statement is, I should already be able to do this. Mm. I should, followed by a bunch of stuff. I should already be able to do this. Um, and that's an emotional thing. So. It doesn't take very much to make it safe to say, you know, you don't know it yet. But if you never say that, sometimes people will be, they'll be, it'll be like something's poking them and you don't know what it is. And it doesn't matter how much technique you throw at them, something's poking at them emotionally. And, uh, and that, I've, I've noticed unpacking that has had tremendous results over the years. Wow. So, that, that really is magical. Um, earlier you said you're not a therapist. I would claim otherwise degree in therapy or not, or certificate of therapy. Honestly, in my opinion, and you know, this might not go with, uh, how, you know, some people look at it, I suppose, but that, you know, essentially everybody's a therapist in one form or another. And, mm. you know, through practice and devotion, you become, you know, more or less of a therapist people that aren't labeled as therapists have been my greatest therapist i mean sometimes even your best <laughs> your best friend you know is your best therapist or your mm. you know you're a child i find i i don't know a i don't know a single you know four-year-old with a therapy degree but i've never met a better therapist for me so and my well, my four-year-old definitely like he he's very insightful sometimes it's kind of amazing the things he says you know i mean then some then i'll say something crazy like hey when i'm 78 years old and you and mommy are both dead i'm gonna build a machine that'll make you be alive again and we're like <laughs> what uh... <laughs> <laughs> you might you might be true um hey things are changing. i'm gonna say go ahead yeah do it dude <laughs> I don't know. There's some movies that show a dark side to that kind of process, but maybe those movies were missing part of what, what your child has in mind. Um, I have uh, a couple things that came to mind that I'd like to ask you about. <clears throat> I'm my primary musical instrument. The one to which I'm the most devoted. I, I play a lot of instruments, but it's the one that I, you know, sit down and practice for many, 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 many hours and hours and hours, primarily because I find that practicing this particular instrument has the most positive effects on my demeanor, attitude, mm. health. It's the thing that makes me feel the best. And that's the drum set. And one thing I found is, and I found it in myself. And then I started paying attention to it in students or people drumming with me. What I found was that whenever I lose time, if I ever glitch in time, like, you know, lose the beat or something, or when other people do, that it always, without a single exception that I've been able to find since I discovered it, involves a moment of holding the breath and hmm. I started, uh, I use a, a, ma a program called Heart Math uh, fairly regularly to. Yeah, I'm to, familiar uh, with that. While I'm practicing. And then I also kind of use the technique while I'm practicing without the software and without the little thing clipped to my ear because it basically tracks your, 
your breath rhythm and in the context of your heart. Have you mm. uh, had any work with, oh, so um, basically I learned this through started, I there's a book called, I think it's called The Power of the Drum or The Healing Drum. I think it's The Healing Drum. And one of the, the basically the guy presents that the number one most important part of drumming is breathing. And that's when I started really paying attention to my breath. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done with drumming was learning how, because I've been drumming since I was a baby, so it just comes naturally. But learning how to breathe uh, smoothly and steadily while I play has turned out to be the most fantastic thing. So I'm wondering, have you had much experience with your students and their breath patterns? I notice when people stop breathing, and typically that's associated with a lot of mental concentration. And so I have I have a three three part framework. I like to I like to call it heart, head, and hands. And um, of course, that's nothing new. But um, using it in this context, it, it really connects to what you're saying, which is that um, when you're when you're focused and you're relaxed and you're feeling centered and you're kind of in your body, your breathing is good, your posture is good, all those things are in alignment, that, that can all be trained into a person. When, when you encounter resistance to those concepts, when you're physically moving someone into that type of physical body alignment and, and something is fighting it, that's because some part of them is tightening a muscle somewhere that, that doesn't need to be tightened. And that's those are like almost like primal reflexes in some people, but I I look at that as a set of archaeological clues to earlier traumas that I can see on an emotional level. And I oftentimes I I see stuff I don't even talk about to them. I don't ask them all the questions, you know, because again I'm not trying to be a therapist. But I it's like purely it's so funny. It's purely technical for me. Yet I also care about these people. Of course, I, I care about everyone I work with. Um. I can see when they're not breathing. I can see when they're tightening up their elbows, their shoulders, their their wrists. I'm basically scanning them from head to toe. I'm reading them like a book and studying them and listen, listening to – sort of listening through my eyes. And when I see those things stop, it's like the energy stops. You can see the energy flow stop and the tightness is coming in. I want to find out why. So that's when I start asking, well, why is your wrist moving like that? And then, of course, they say, I don't know. I say, okay, well, let's move it back like this. And I noticed you're not breathing. So then let's breathe. And just telling someone to breathe sometimes is enough. That opens up a different thing. The point I'm making is if I put the heart, head, and hands in alignment through a set of guided questions, question and answer, conversational type teaching style, that's, that's the goal then the breathing is in the center of all of that. And when you're looking at piano, Herbie Hancock, uh, I believe it was Herbie Hancock said, you know, piano is just 88 little drums. <laughs> I mean, everybody's a drummer. They just don't always know it. And people that have really good rhythm tend to have everything else is easier for them anyway. Um, and if you know, you know, reading music is way easier if you read the rhythms Quickly, you absorb the rhythms first. And the breath is a rhythm. There's a certain amount of breaths per minute on average. It's like the heartbeat, you know? The, the heartbeat and the breath have to go together. And again, if you see that that's not in alignment, if you see that it's not happening the right way, just like a martial arts lesson, um, you can actually see if someone's bringing tightness and tension in. And that tightness or tension in the context of a martial arts lesson, like if you're doing some groundwork or some sparring or some kind of, um, you know, would do swordsmanship. Uh, when someone's tight or tense, that's a, that's a weakness that can be exploited. So someone can someone can use that. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, when the breath when the breath stops, the energy has to flow. It has to constantly be flowing. So yeah, I, I definitely identify with that a lot with what you're saying about rhythm and breath. And, and uh, back to the relationship between martial arts and music as a sort of a, an interesting thing. 
I, I was in Hawaii and I was studying <clears throat> studying Tai Chi with this pretty advanced teacher. And then this other guy shows up in town and my teacher basically said, this guy is so advanced, I can't teach anymore because this guy's around. And so then that guy took over as the teacher and teacher number one. So teacher number one was all of a sudden the student of teacher number two. And now Mm. I'm sort of not really a student anymore. I'm just this kind of sidekick along for the ride for these Tai Chi lessons that are far, that are already they're they're for the level of someone who's already in a very, very advanced. And teacher number two had the interesting maybe unrelated quality of being a, I probably would typically use a dirtier word, but a a real jerk. I couldn't stand Mm. the guy. He was a really unfriendly guy. And one time we're sitting, eating lunch, the three of us, me, teacher number one, teacher number two. And the guy just suddenly reads my mind. I was being silent and he looks at me and he said, just because you think I'm an a-hole, doesn't mean I'm not a good teacher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's really funny because that's what I, w- I was thinking. But that was totally irrelevant uh, side story. My point was that guy presented me with one thing that uh, stuck with me. I didn't really get much from him except this one thing. And it's actually really been a tremendous gift for my life. So I'm appreciative to teacher number two as much a jerk as he was. He said, <clears throat> so he was a, also a very expert drummer. And and so he's an, a very advanced Tai Chi expert and an advanced drummer. And he said, he taught me this method. He said that when you're learning a new, a new pattern on a musical instrument, to pretend that you already know it, but that you forgot it and that you're the process of learning it is actually the process of remembering it and that anything that's keeping you from playing it well is simply your own blockages to letting come out of you what you already know. And it's sort of this interesting mind trick, kind of like when you're running and you sort of rotate your perception so you feel like you're running downhill in your mind even when you're going up a hill. Um, Mm. Have you ever experimented with anything like that this sort of reverse method of pretending you already know what you're learning Mm -hmm. absolutely Uh, a lot of my my um techniques that i've developed over the years as a musician came directly as a result of hearing something in my head that i could not play yet and uh, no one taught it to me it was it was something i was composing and then i i didn't know how to play it and it wasn't written down on a piece of paper. It wasn't old dead white guy music. It, it wasn't on a record. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, I got this thing in my head. And it was, I, w- I was like hallucinating musical patterns that I could not play. And so what, what I would do is I would sit there and just do one take after the next and I would record it. Um, this was when I was a teenager. I would stay up till two in the morning every night, you know, in high school especially and and I would make all these recordings and um and I would and this was before digital recording was really accessible to anybody so I had an old tape uh Tascam 8 track tape machine yeah. cassette tape I yeah just, that's how I learned I just you know? gave one of those away yesterday that's hilarious it was the coolest thing man cuz but so the, everything was destructive in other words you couldn't make a playlist it was it's not like you could do a you could comp anything you know it was all like if you re if you did another take you recorded over the thing you just did and it was gone forever so that was how i learned a lot of uh what what i've learned on bass and guitar particularly and um and and it was having a perfect picture in my mind i I could hear it this came early this came to me as a young child i would hear symphonies in my head when i was six years old i started hearing full symphonies in my head and um, and they weren't Beethoven symphonies; they were my symphonies. And I and it drove me crazy because I didn't know how to make any of it happen. I didn't know how to get it out of my head. 
So I had to go learn how to do that. And really, my the last 30 years, because I'm 36 now, have been that journey of trying to get that to get those images of those sounds that are that are just happening on their own to get them out of my mind. And then students come to me and they're like, they want to learn improvisation and composition. And the first thing I'm asking them is, well, what are you hearing in your head? And sometimes they're not hearing anything yet. And so that's an interesting conundrum. You know, it's almost like, I don't want to say that it's this magical gift that only special people have. So a lot of why I teach is because I want to take the things that I've been lucky enough to receive through my weird life that I've lived and make it accessible to other people, no matter what their background is. Say, you know what, there's actually a process. And and not everybody is gonna, gonna go down the road the same way, but there are steps that everyone can take to develop these skill sets. And it's not all magic. You know, there, there's, there's ways to approach this. Um, so, you know, I like to share it in that way. Do, do you know the name of that a uh, guy who's made, you know, hundreds or maybe thousands of play-along jazz CDs that they use in music school a lot. He looks kind of like Mr. Rogers. I uh, don't remember. Is that Abersold? Jamie Abersold? I think that's it. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty might have been him. I'm pretty sure that's it. I once was, uh, I took a jazz, a weekend-long jazz workshop with him, and there were no other drummers. And so my job was to be on the stage with him. So it was just me and him on stage all weekend. And, you know, it's the sort of straightest, most practiced, perfect playing music guy in the world. <laughs> and then yeah. me, the, the, you know, wild man come out of the forest <laughs> with my self-taught jazz licks. And that's fun. It was it fun was uh, pretty slim, but it was yeah. it was a learning experience. But um, so he he spent a lot of time. A lot of the class was devoted to teaching the others what to do by clarifying um, by ex- my example what not to do. So uh, he 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 showed me about everything that I do wrong. Um, pretty Mm. extensively and actually that's been a great benefit to me but one thing he said that stuck with me from that class is there was a woman there from Trinidad who had been playing steel pan her whole life and it just steel pan just flowed out of her you know as effortlessly as anything and he turned to her and he complimented her out loud in the class and discussed it how he could tell he said that whatever she was playing was precisely what she was hearing in her head, that there was mm-hmm. no discrepancy between what was coming out of her hands and what yeah. she was thinking. And it really reminds yeah. me of what you're, you're talking about is uh, yeah. working toward that state. Well, I feel like I'm never going to get there because it's an impossible perfection. And I'm okay with that, um, but I always want to get closer to it. It's like the golden mean. You know, there's no no human body exactly is hitting those proportions because they're they're like out to infinity perfect. You know, uh, we're we're all slightly off from it. Um, but I mean, I think some of the the, the greatest musicians of all time. That's like you know, you think about Bach. Um, the, there were they had duels back then. They had organ duels. They'd take turns improvising off of a theme that someone threw out. You know, there'd be a winner and a loser. And um, and it was all off the top of their head, and it was all there. There was no separation between thinking it and your fingers hit it, and it's right. And that's amazing. I mean, that's the, that's the highest level. I've I've been very devoted. For me, playing music is probably more personal therapy than it is yeah. anyth- anything else. I if I don't play drums for a long enough period of time anybody around me will know it. They might not know why I'm not, <laughs> not the cool guy they thought I was, but they'll, they'll know that I'm not. And then, and sometimes it takes me a while to realize it. I'll, I'll be like, I'll realize, Oh man, I haven't played the drum set in a couple weeks or something. And no yeah. wonder I'm in a bad mood all day. <clears throat> 
But one thing I've been working on as it's sort of a big part of my therapy uh, in practice, and I've been working on it for, you know, my entire adult life, but independence. I used to be working on independence of primarily of my right and left arms, and then it kind of started working on independence of all four limbs, and then now independence of all four limbs and my voice. So it's five five separate things. But uh, to me, that's been the most sort of, like you talked about a goal that, you know, you might never really totally achieve, but working toward it has always been official. That's kind of how I feel about independence. I can work for my whole life to, to gain four limb total independence, but I'll always just move in that direction. But what, what is it that makes it possible to work that hard? And, and that's a rhetorical question that I'm throwing out for you to think about. Um, I think you probably could tell me the answer, but I'll give you my answer because, you know, I, I've been thinking about this a little bit during this whole, this whole conversation. You asked, you know, what's an example of something that kind of the, the magic music method, like where you're all of a sudden it kind of feels like therapy, but you're not pretending to be a licensed therapist, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, but there's an emotional component here. And to me, it's making it safe to work really hard. Well, how do we do that? Especially with kids, teenagers, and students that they don't have a high level of skill acquisition yet. They don't have a lot of evidence to prove to themselves that they're like, you know, some incredible virtuoso, right? Um, so they can kind of feel beaten down sometimes if they're constantly being corrected, if they're, if they're constantly making mistakes and having to stop and fix them. So how do we make it okay? And the answer that I've come up with is a three-part framework. And that thing I talked about earlier, the heart, the head, and the hands, I, I always notice what people do when they make a mistake. And I think that's really, really important because one of my one of my – one-liners is how you feel is more important than what you play. And the reason I do that is because how you feel will determine how long you're willing to really work. Mm. And, and if we don't address that on the front end, then two years from now, you'll burn out, you'll quit. And then when you're in your 40s, you'll be like, man, I wish I hadn't quit. So we have to actually address that first. And it may seem odd, but the heart comes first. And what I do is I say, all right, a mistake happens. Da, 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 blah. Oops. What do you do immediately? What's the first thing you do? And 99% of the time, people don't know. They don't, they don't think of the answer that I'm about to tell you. Um, but the answer is you forgive yourself. Mm. And you do, you do that in your heart. You give yourself forgiveness. And especially with students that have really rigid religious backgrounds, sometimes that idea is like, what did you just say? Um, I forgive myself. You know, that's like, how many times have you seen a student say, I'm sorry, when they made a mistake? Too many. You know? Well, you know who taught me to stop apologizing for making mistakes was was my uh, swordsmanship teacher, my martial arts teacher. Um at, at one point, I was like, I kept saying I'm sorry when I would make a mistake. And he was like, stop apologizing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want you to be sorry. I want you to do it right. <laughs> of course, you know, I mean, thinking about it as a teacher, that makes perfect sense. But as a student, you go in and there's that parent-child relationship that creeps in. And you got to watch out for that. So I'm going, okay, you make a mistake. Number one, and these all start with the letter F. Number one, forgive yourself. And that has a location. That location is in your heart. You forgive yourself in your heart. And I'm going to wait for that student to do that. And until I can really tell that they've done that, I'll stop the lesson and I'll wait. And uh, I'm pretty good at, at making people feel comfortable and, you know, it's safe to just stop for a minute and talk about this. Because at the end of the day, if we don't deal with that first thing, I don't care what else we think we're getting done that day they're going to quit in a year. And mm. I know this because I've been doing this for 15 years. They're going to quit. The ones that don't quit are the ones that get through that. That's always the mm. case. Um, step number two, you've forgiven yourself. Okay. 
Good. I'm glad. I'm glad we feel good. Now, if all we ever do is forgive ourselves, well, then we're going to be feeling real good about nothing, right? Because we have to now do something. We have to figure it out. We have to do that in our in your head. Your mind has to figure out what happened. You actually have to identify where things went wrong. If you don't do that, then you'll just be forgiving yourself and feeling real good about nothing. So let's talk about what happened. Oh, you put your ring finger on that on that spot, and then that when you tried to pivot under there, you got caught on that node, and then it all fell apart. So now step number three is we actually have to fix it. And we're going to take action, and we're going to sit and repeat this in slow motion at the speed of no mistakes as many times as it takes. And after you've done this 25 times and it's still not there yet, and you start feeling like, I should already know how to do this, I'm gonna remind you, no, you shouldn't. And then you're gonna say, why? I'm gonna say, because you can't. And if you can't, that means there's no reasonable expectation. Think about it for a second. Why should you know how to do something that you clearly can't do? (laughs) It's that doesn't make any sense. Forgive? Did you forget to forgive yourself? Okay, back to step number one. <laughs> uh, and we go through that cycle over and over again, sometimes for six weeks, two months, three months. Once that operating system is installed, their skills increase much faster. Man, that makes so much sense to me. Uh, a real quick story. I was in... In a situation where Zakir Hussein was there, and I don't know if you're familiar, but he's oh man, yeah, one wow, of the most Lucky. accomplished musicians alive on the earth, and one of the most thoroughly disciplined and trained. Well, know, he's one of those one of those players who, the minute he it crosses his mind, it happens. Yeah, and there's no separation there. So I had him all alone for <clears throat> I don't know maybe. 30 minutes or something. And so I'm usually not too hesitant to take advantage of that kind of situation. If I'm in the presence of a great master, they generally have to tell me to go away before I will. And I asked him, I said, all right, Zakir, um, you are, you know, one of the most accomplished, uh, best trained, knowledgeable, virtuoso musicians alive on the planet arguably. Um, and here I am, I, we have this very limited amount of time. Teach me something. Just, we didn't have drums or anything. I was just like, lay it on me, whatever wisdom you can pass on. I'm here asking, please share it. And he said, and as soon as he started talking, my heart's skipping beats. I'm nervous. I'm kind of scared of what he's going to say. And he's, (laughs) I thought he was going to say something like, well, you know, spent 10, 20 years practicing eight hours a day, seven days a week without ever has, without ever making, you know, without ever not doing that and then come back to me and I'll teach you part two or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What he said was, this is the number one lesson. He said, whenever you touch your instrument, whether you're tuning it, playing it, practicing, performing, carrying your instrument, fixing your instrument. Whenever you touch your instrument, keep one primary discipline and make this your full life discipline. He said, always, always have fun. Oh, yeah. And yeah, it was like this giant sort of pressure that was in me just suddenly popped and I was relieved. And since then I've really focused on that quite a bit and noticed that it's not as easy as it sounds. There's times where maintaining the discipline of having fun is extremely challenging, but it's always rewarding. So I'm really grateful that he, uh, he passed that on. And I, I share that story quite a bit. I've probably already said it on this podcast series. Well, that's a great story, and that's the that's the bottom line. That's <laughs> why we're attracted to all this stuff, you know. So, so like sometimes we get philosophical, or we we discover an emotional block, you know. I mean, there's there is such a thing as play therapy, 
you know, um, for kids that, that, uh, you know, but, um, that's a little non sequitur, but it's, it's a thing, you know, and, and it's like in the context of play, there's therapy and that's, that's why we're doing this. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense, but I think it's also important to have a methodology or a framework so that when an obstacle appears, you can identify it and move it out of the way in that higher pursuit. And so like in the context of like that three-step framework, you know, like forgive yourself, figure it out and fix it. If you lay over the top of that, what you just said, now we're kicking it into, into high gear because now it just happens we're not, to be another, you know F. what I mean? It's it happens perfect. to be another F by the way. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's something else that I don't usually get into inside of a lesson. And the reason I don't is because I tend to avoid directly addressing anything of a spiritual nature in a music lesson. Reason being, my students are from different backgrounds. We don't always share the same beliefs. Um, you know, if they're, if they're under 18, it's someone else's kid. I'm not going to try to tell them something that's going to contradict a bunch of stuff that they're, that they believe. And you know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to yeah. mess with, I'm not going to mess around with that, but I've noticed that there is a spiritual effect at least in me, so I'll talk about myself because I'm not, I'm not really talking about anyone else, when the heart and the head and the hands come into dynamic alignment, when I'm forgiving myself, when I'm figuring out the mistakes and fixing them, if I do that in music, if I do that as a father, if I do that when I'm cooking, if I do that as a husband, if I do that in a, in a martial arts lesson, uh, you know, practicing swordsmanship, practicing throws, takedowns, joint locks, all those techniques require a high degree of focus, alignment, clear your mind, be in your body, uh, sort of a pure state of consciousness. All those different activities, when I get into that zone, only I, I really feel like at the highest level, when, when those things go into dynamic alignment, which of course is, you know, by no means is that something that happens to me every day because... I'm not saying I'm perfect, <laughs> so please don't get the wrong idea. Um, I struggle just as much as anyone else. But when when I when I achieve an alignment like that, that's when the the spiritual doors open. It's almost like the spiritual part's perfect. It's already perfect. It's just waiting for me to let it come in and give it something to inhabit that's purified. So that's the higher purpose for all these things for me. That's my transformation. That's what I'm seeking. That's what I'm always looking for. What's that purification? Because if I can purify myself, then I can invite higher spiritual energy in and it'll come in and it'll infuse it and it'll kick everything into higher gear. Uh, and if I'm, if I'm all caught up in a bunch of BS, if I'm really distracted by my, my petty whatever, you know, if I'm off in some rabbit hole, then I'm not going to notice that spiritual side of things as much. And that's so that to me, all these disciplines, all these rituals are just a way of coming back to that. Does mm. that make sense? It makes beautiful and perfect sense to me. And I really appreciate your sharing it in such a, uh, um, a well conveyed, systematic, easy to get at format because that's usually that's that's really the big challenge with such subtle things and I think that's you know part of what makes a good teacher and part of why you're such a good teacher is because you're able to formulate things such that they can be conveyed more efficiently um on this uh I'd like to take a moment now to make sure that you uh let us know the let the audience know any way that you might want to be contacted or where people might be able to find out more about you or um, maybe learn, take lessons from you or what read your writings or whatever you'd yeah. like to share with us. This is a good time for it. Well, yeah. So there's a few different channels that I've set up. One of them is actually down right now, which is kind of hilarious. Perfect timing. Um, so, you know, for the last, I guess, five years or so, I've been writing these books for the magic music method. And the challenge with that is um, putting things into frameworks when 
you know, everything's dynamic and it's like every student that walks in the door, I'm basically making a different method for them on the spot. So how do I turn that into a quote unquote method book? You know, well, I kind of played around with that and method books, I kind of want to make this more supplemental. So we add this in if you're already doing a different method. I know I'm kind of jumping down that rabbit hole, but the reason I'm bringing that up is, you know, I had a website for a while that was magicmusicmethod.com. That's currently down and I'm rebuilding it. So in the meantime, I have a Facebook page called Creative, if you're a piano teacher, Creative Piano Teachers. So if you just type that into Facebook, that'll pop up. I also have Ernest Chapman Music Lessons on Facebook, which is uh, just more for people that want to take lessons with me. They can get they can get me through there. And then I also have um, just Ernest Chapman, which is a Facebook page that's like a professional page for me. And it and it contains a lot of different posts of different things I'm working on because. You know, we've talked a lot about personal transformation, music, touched on martial arts a little bit, um, and just talked about these different processes. But I also do uh, a, a thing that I like to call brand therapy, where if you could imagine some of this kind of thinking, but applied to consulting with with companies, with founders of companies, with uh, CEOs um, and startups, on applying this kind of thinking to their branding and marketing. So that's like a whole other thing. I've been doing that kind of work. And then I'm also developing a set of, of um, materials around the concept of verbal design. Um, so all this is under development right now. So, you know, if you find me on Facebook, you know, search for me on Facebook, then you'll get to my page. And that's where I'm going to be kind of throwing everything through because I'm juggling a bunch of stuff. Um, and it's like <laughs> just funny timing, you know, like the whole, well, I'm between websites. So got to find me on Facebook right now. <laughs> Perfect. That sounds pretty easy. And yeah. uh, sure, most of our listeners know what that is and how to do it. Um, oh, yeah. So, I wish it was simpler. I wish it was simpler. Like, well, just go to ErnestChapman.com and it's all there. But, you know, we'll get there. We'll soon come. And this uh, this podcast will be presumably be up for a while and a lot of the listeners will presumably be listening at a later date. So potentially. Yeah. I might've just given myself a bunch of homework assignments now. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I go build it. So the, the, the theme of this podcast series is, you know, the name of it is the art and science of sound healing. And yeah, Something I find really, or there's a lot I found very interesting in what you're talking about because there were so many parallels between how you were describing teaching music, uh, teaching a student of, you know, how to play an instrument or teaching them how to, you know, be a musician or grow as a musician between what you described there and what happens in uh, situations that are referred to as sound therapy sessions where, you know, generally these kind of things occur where somebody usually is sort of a more passive, somewhat passive recipient. And then someone, uh, around them, the, the, the person acting as a therapist in this case is playing sounds, uh, whether they're from uh, musical instruments that are live or they could even sometimes be, you know, through electronic devices. Sometimes it's done uh, without a person there, without a therapist per se, and just done with a sound immersion table, for example. I build sound immersion tables that are utilized for that purpose, among others. But what you described, your whole sort of rundown on the on the music lesson really is it's just so very similar to what occurs in a sound therapy session and essentially the 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 way you describe your lessons it it really sounds like whether you call it therapy or not a therapeutic experience and so yeah. I, I just find that really fascinating that we can learn and that's part of the theme of this show is for people to expand their knowledge of sound therapy beyond what is being propagated by people that call themselves sound therapists. Mm. Instead yeah. to realize that 
a lot of the real great keys to expanding and uh, strengthening this field called sound therapy comes from from the outside instead of from people that are doing other things like you know musicians on stage are doing sound therapy for huge crowds of people um oh yeah just oh, yeah. from from every sort of angle hypnotherapists are doing sound therapy by talking to someone and talking very gently and slowly and yeah because their voice is an instrument yeah so i just wanted to bring it back to that a little bit and see, just kind of point that out and see if you have anything you'd like to add in that regard well absolutely um I would say one of you know one of my greatest mentors has been uh, Chris Garland, who's my martial arts teacher. He teaches me um, swordsmanship. We study a lot of different platforms within that context. Um, he's got a school called Executive Martial Arts, and he's the inheritor of a tra- of a tradition called Samrong Do. And if you Google Samrong Do, Chris Garland, you'll find a bunch of stuff. Um, his teacher was Jihan Jay, is Jihan Jay, and Jihan Jay's teacher, um, Grandmaster Choi, and his teacher, Sokaku Takeda. And so that lineage is important, and it relates to what you're talking about, because what, um, what I'm connecting here is there's – okay, so I'm, I'm kind of – it's hard to, to put into words, but uh, – it's the idea that you're able to get things from different disciplines. And, and again, I started this conversation by saying putting things in the wrong category. But Chris, Chris Garland's grandfather is, is a great uh, violin fiddle player, Vassar Clements. And Vassar Clements wrote The Devil Went Down to Georgia, was, was a mentor and teacher and, and played with great musicians like you know, Grateful Dead, for instance. They, they, were, they were tight. There's, there's a lineage of musical transmission. In the way that, uh, in the way he moves as a martial artist, that that came back around and actually influenced the way I play and teach music. Huh. So, so the connection there is like there's this there's this virtuous cycle of, I you know I go into these lessons and I bring an attitude of reverence and respect and this is a ritual and I'm here to be corrected and to learn and to grow and to be challenged and to to do the best I can as a student. Right. And then the things that I learn that I absorb are, are learned on a physical level in my body and my muscles, the way I move. It's fundamentally shifted the way I move on a physical level. And as we were discussing, there's there's a set of relationships between the physical and the emotional and the mental. It's building a set of structures that go through all the layers of your being all the way to the spiritual. And. Now, take all of that and then apply it to music. Take all of that and apply it to how to be a better person, how to be a more stable person, how to, how to be a more dependable person. Um, the, the basic principles of rhythm, the, the principles like – and I'm a drummer too. Um, I'm not as devoted as you are, but I, you know, I've been playing for 20 years. And um, the way you move, the way you, the, the way you move and you hit – the way the drumstick hits the head, you know, that's, that's not – there are there are similarities between these things and the way you would strike somebody with uh, with a sword. There's similarities between the way you stomp and the way you breathe and the way you move with with the rhythmic patterns of music. Um, and you know you look at great fighters like Muhammad Ali. I mean, watching Muhammad Ali, you're you're watching John Coltrane. You're you're watching Mozart. That's what you're looking at. You're looking at Mozart punching someone in the face. <laughs> Um, so I, and that's the way my brain works. Uh, and I, so I I have to kind of give that shout out to, uh, and he, you know, he's a, he's a grandmaster, uh, grandmaster Chris Garland for, for helping me to, to internalize some of these teachings, which have then come out in other areas. And I didn't know that that was going to happen when, you know, 10 years ago I went in and started, started studying. I, I didn't know that, you know what I mean? Like sometimes you get surprised by the by the gifts that you receive from from training and from studying with people um so yeah that that's what that led me to think of is just how things jump categories you know you think oh we're going to put everything in all these little boxes and it's going to be no man <laughs> it doesn't work like that uh, everything's connected that is a beautiful closing point point. 
everything is connected. Everything I, is connected. I know there's a, a, a pretty broad variety of other topics that we didn't even begin to touch. And I would certainly like to touch on them. I won't even, I won't even go so far as to name them right now because that might, uh, causes to, <laughs> then we'll be doing three more hours yeah so but i uh i really appreciate your being here and all that you've shared i i it would be my hope that you might actually come back and we can discuss some some of those other other things that are coming to mind I'd love to um yeah. also if well, you, you know yeah you could check out the check out this <laughs> sorry to jump in again but oh, yeah. i'll make it quick um some of these concepts are also touched on in a movie that I was just in that I also wrote the score to um, called 33 and Beyond, The Royal Art of Freemasonry. And it's all about the system of, of uh, allegory and symbolism and personal transformation of Freemasonry, which, again, is connected to all of these other things. And I was, I was uh, fortunate enough to be asked to write music for the score to that documentary wow. which is now it's now out on amazon and itunes and you can I mean, you can watch it tonight if you want nice. um so if, if you google that you'll find it and and, you'll, and i'm interviewed in it and there's a number of people interviewed in it that are really interesting but again it's like there's another rabbit hole you know you can take this a few different directions so there's there's more conversation for sure fantastic once again thank you ernest chapman i hope that people uh reach out to you and, and find your, uh, your stuff. And I look forward to speaking to you with you again soon. Well, thanks so much. It's been a blast. Well, until next time, this is Thomas or Anderson. This is the podcast series, the art and science of sound healing. Be blessed. This podcast is brought to you by Phisonics Sound Immersion Technologies, makers of the world's highest fidelity sound immersion systems. Phisonics.com, P-H-I-S-O-N-I-C-S.com.